we're going to talk about. This is a series that we've done the last eight years following Easter intentionally about topics that are right in front of us. So by way of introducing this important topic of gender identity, let me have you meet a number of things. Meet some real people. Meet the reality of living today for our younger people. And then finally, meet the hope that we have. First of all, I want you to meet some real people, both the cashier that I met last week and the employee on Main Street, downtown Chippewa Falls. First, the employee on Main Street, downtown Chippewa Falls. It was a beautiful Monday, Easter Monday, and Julie and I had taken a late afternoon walk. And um, as we walked the downtown street of Chippewa Falls, we walked by someone who was transitioning. And uh, then last week, uh, we were up north celebrating Easter with my family. My daughter has three children, four and under. Yeah, so getting one-on-one -on -one time with uh, her is really unique. So when she said, Dad, do you want to run an errand with me? I jumped on it and saw the cashier. And the cashier was transitioning. And when I saw both of these two people, I wondered to myself, what is the backstory? What is their background? How were they treated and who are they? They're somebody's son, they're somebody's grandson, they're somebody's nephew, somebody's cousin, somebody's friend. They're made in God's image. And God loves them as much as he does my wife and I. And as much as he loves you. They're made in God's image. Then I want you to meet the reality of living in high school for Gen Z or for our friends who are the millennials who we hear much of. They're a huge demographic in our, in our population. And according to a recent survey in the fall of 2020 by YouGov, fewer than half, 48% of Gen Z respondents, and fewer than half millennials, 48 respondents, say they are completely heterosexual, meaning that there is a spectrum of male-female. There is a fluid sense of identity, meaning I don't know who I am. And for those of us from some generations, that means may seem incredibly foreign. I'm a boomer. But feelings of being so overwhelmed in our universities and the spike in mental health is off the charts. I think they're related. You might not agree or appreciate uh, a study by YouGov. So in Christianity Today in November of 2022, amongst evangelical youth defined as 45 and under, there is a 55 and a 45% affirmation of LGBTQ. That's the reality that we have for our young people. And what I'm going to say is how this relates to you is if you have a grandson or a child or a nephew or a niece or a cousin that is in that demographic, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you to listen for two because this will be an issue that our young people are dealing with and we must pass on the generation. Now, here's the last meet the, meet the hope is that it's, it, it's this. Nothing takes our father by surprise. Nothing takes our father by surprise. COVID didn't take our father by surprise. Political divide didn't take our father by surprise. 
nothing takes our Father by surprise. I received in the mail this week a, uh, a financial appeal from a beautiful ministry called Samaritan's Purse that Julie and I support. Maybe many of you do. And on the front cover it said, Restoring Hope in Turkey and all the challenges that they've had. And I didn't even open the letter, and I thought, how do you restore a hope in a country? You do it one heart at a time, don't you? One heart at a time. So this morning, this is a part one of a two-part grace and truth discussion on gender identity. This message will lay a foundation about a message that has been entitled, The Landscape Has Changed. Can you advance? There we go. Um, that was the opening statement by the dean of the seminary at the Lutheran Brethren Seminary. They hosted a conference in October of 2022. And when the dean, Dr. Brad Pribenow, mentioned that, I thought, boy, have things really changed, haven't they? The main presenter was Dr. Julia Sandusky, who was excellent. She was intelligent. She was scholarly. She was thoroughly scripturally based. And she was really, really wise. So today's message was influenced by those talks, and especially the second point in this message. And I just want to encourage you, as Pastor Brian said, to come back for sessions four to seven. Pastor Brian will base much of the discussion on Dr. Sandusky's work, so I want to invite you. And if you're listening on the radio this morning, you can, uh, if you can't make it back this afternoon, go to lbs.edu forward slash event fall conference. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it a little bit slower so you can write it down. Go to lbs.edu. lbs.edu. Now let me just say this real quick. We are people of the book who know the author. We study the word of God, the Bible, in order to know the word of God, Jesus. That's why we study the book. We study, we get knowledge, we memorize scripture, we take classes with one goal, to know the king, to know his, act, his actions, his heart, and his character. You can study and have knowledge and take classes and not know the author. Ever hear the Pharisees? Can't throw them all under the bus. There was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who buried our king and Lord. There was our friend Paul in Acts chapter 9. And there were some Pharisees who wanted to dine with Jesus in Luke 11, and some who warned Jesus about Herod wanting to kill him. But nothing beats knowing the author. And knowing the author of the book gives hope when the landscape has changed. So where does our church stand? Maybe you're saying, we've got to take a stand. Well, we want to take, I want to say this now, and I'm not trying to be cute. We want to take a stand with coffee in our hands. What do you mean by that? We want our stand to be framed with grace and truth. Remember, grace always comes in front of truth. Always. Grace and truth in our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace always fronts truth. So there's going to be three questions we're going to look at. Hopefully you'll remember this. Our first question is this. What does God see when he looks at me? Am I enough? Am I enough? And the first question fronts grace. The second thing that we'll look at is, do you remember the good old days? Remember the good old days? Spiritually speaking, what is good? That's the truth part. And then we finally ask this question, 
where's the hope? How do I make sense out of all of this? So let us pray. It's just a short prayer. We bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, we confess that we are sinners. And we have been rescued by Jesus. Totally by grace. So I pray, Father, that you would use these words to equip the flock as we gather and will soon scatter. There are so many clamoring voices, yet nothing surprises you. All the resources of heaven are at your disposal, and you give those to your disciples. Give us wisdom as we search for it, as we try to navigate this. And I pray that you'll fill us with your spirit daily because we need it. Come, Holy Spirit, do your work amongst your people for your glory. Amen and amen. This is the first point I want to share with you. It's this question that fronts grace. If you have a bulletin insert, you may want to jot some thoughts down here as you listen for two. My question is this, what does God see when he looks at me? One writer posed the same kind of question this way, and I thought it was really good. It's made, been making me think, if you imagine God looking at you, what expressions does he have on his face? Let me repeat that again. If you imagine God looking at you, what expression does he have on his face? What's your answer? Are his arms crossed? Is his head shaking? Is he looking at you with that look that says, do better, try harder? Many, as, many of us are keenly aware of our brokenness and the curse of sin. How can God be pleased with me? I can't even do what's right. He knows our self-destructive habits. In Romans chapter 7, it is the reality of the spiritual struggles. They're published. If our struggles were published on the screen or it was printed when you got your handout this morning or the bulletin and they handed out all your struggles and your failures this week, would any of us be welcomed in the house of worship? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 14, 17, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am an unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that the good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. We are tied to the law because we're built in the image of God Almighty. We are fashioned and shaped in God's image, and we have a moral conscience. And yes, that conscience can be certainly singed. So what does our Savior see? There's a passage in John chapter 8 that it's a real-life account of our Lord, and it's a person found in sexual sin. It's in John chapter 8. And I came across a devotional commentary that was so helpful that I never saw this before. It's Footsteps of, of Jesus by my friend, Pastor Bob Ronglin. He said, what does Jesus write in the dirt? This woman was caught in adultery. The Pharisees threw her in front of Jesus and said, the law says to stone her. What do you say? They wanted to trick Jesus. And so the Bible says that Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust. What did he write? Some commentators, my friend Bob said, Pastor Bob said, maybe he wrote down Exodus chapter 20 that prescribes death to both the male and the female. And so you got to ask the question, where's the guy? Right? The second thing that he mentioned is 
Maybe he wrote down Jeremiah 17, 13. Lord, you are the hope of Israel, and all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who've turned away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. But what struck me, and I've been thinking about this all week, is he said there is compelling evidence found in Arabic texts which demonstrate when a Middle Easterner is overcome by feelings they can't control. They will doodle in the dirt to regain their composure. Jesus was so enraged by the judgmental hypocrisies of these religious leaders who were using a broken woman as their political pawn, pawn, he needed a few moments to regain his composure. And when I read that, I thought that fits the king who I know. Because the Bible says he was tempted in every way. He was tested in every way, yet he was without sin. He was so overcome, he had to compose himself. He asked the woman in John chapter 8, verse 10, where are those who are condemning you? There is a, a nuance and a difference intense in the word condemn. Jesus uses it two times, the word condemn, but there's a nuance, just kind of a slight, slight twist. Don't miss it. The word condemn is used in the past. When Jesus writes in the sand, he writes, those who are without sin, let him cast the first stone. And beginning with the oldest to the youngest, the stones drop. The stones drop. And then he turns to the woman and he says, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? They've all left. Neither do I condemn you. The nuance of this, the word condemn is the same, but the first condemn is past and he's speaking it to her, you. The second word for condemn, there's a tweak there, just a nuanced tweak, and, and now it's present. And the person is first person, singular. Jesus is the one who is saying, I don't condemn you. Who is he? Who is he that can, can say all condemnation is gone? Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2.24. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, go and sin no more. She went from no one is here to no more sinning, which is a present command. We have this objective reality compared with present reality. The objective reality is she was caught in sin. The present reality is I don't condemn you anymore. How are you doing with condemning voices? Do you hear this voice that says not enough, good enough, try enough, strive enough? Are you ever going to be good enough? No. But if you're a child of God, if you're a child of God, if you're in Christ, the condemnation has been taken by King Jesus. That's called really good news. What happens to the unredeemed ones? What voices do they hear if no gospel witnesses are in their life? Here is our stand with coffee in our hands to have grace and truth. There is really hope in the person and the change that can come in Jesus Christ. We bear witness to that.
We can never do enough, but Christ is our hope and redemption. So we mentioned these um, lectures. We're going to watch Dr. Sadusky. You will find her absolutely fascinating. She knows her stuff. Young gal out of Colorado. But the first lecture that was done was called, What is it like to be human? And Professor Clint Knudsen had a 55-minute lecture, so buckle up. I'm going to take his 55-minute lecture and try to condense it to about eight minutes. And so he was really helpful in this second point. And the second point that I want to ask is, do you remember the good old days? And let's look back to the good old days. If you're listening on the radio, I'm not talking about the 30s or the 40s or even the 1700s when our country founded, or the Reformation, which has its DNA in a, our church as a Lutheran church. You might think the time of Jesus, good guess, but no. Even further to when life was perfect to the Garden of Eden. Early church leader Augustine, called a church father, wrote around 400 A.D., For thou hast formed us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. What makes something good? Why do I call it the good old days? Because God said it was good, and there was no curse. There was a perfect Adam and a perfect Eve. Those are the good old days. In fact, the Bible uses a word repeatedly in Genesis 1, in verse 10, 12, 18, 25, and 31, and the word is tov, T-O-V, and it was good. It was tov, it was tov, it was tov. And when male and female were created, he said, it was very tov. God himself. He breathed into Adam the breath of life. He went from a non-living being to a living being who had the breath of life in Genesis 2-7. The second Adam, the final Adam, didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Did you hear that? Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive dead in their sins. In those good tov days, relationships were tov. They were made in the image. They were specially crafted. They were fashioned. They were formed. The New Testament even picks this up. And both of them, when they talk about the image of the Creator, are used in talking about other Christians. Colossians 3, 9 and, says, 9 and 10 says, don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of our creator. We're being renewed in the image of our creator like we were in 12 days. The book of James uses the tongue as well too. In James 3.9, there's this warning about speaking about to other believers. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human can tame the tongue. It's restless, it's evil, it's full of deadly poison. And with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who've been made in the image and likeness of God. Don't miss that. Genesis 1.26 uses the word create. Three times, he created him, single-use pronoun. He created them, plural, male and female, uniquely created with sexual distinctives. These distinctives are not constructs of human, but biological and sexual constructs of God our Father. They're established by our loving creator. 
<clears throat> to be made human is to be male and female, is to be made in the image of God. This is, by the way, Jesus' reaffirmation of marriage in the New Testament of husband and wife, sexuality and marriage. It's beautiful. There is beauty in this perfection. And we understand the biblical definition of marriage in this way. God serves as the first officiant. He's the first officiant at the first wedding ceremony of male and female. Husband and wife, sexuality and marriage is unashamed in nakedness, but the story doesn't end. We wish it ended there. I've shared this story before. A night to shine, uh, Julie was handing me the crowns, and, uh, and as she handed me the crowns, all the guests would come up the aisle. How many of you were here for Night to Shine? Do you remember that? Some of you saw that. And, uh, and, and so I had, this is the girl crown, and so, you know, you're trying to work with hair and trying to do this the right way. And, and I said the same thing to everyone. Someone asked me, what were you saying in their ears? I said this, you are made in the image of the king. You are greatly loved. Have a blast. We're made in the image of the king. All of us are loved. Not all of us are children of God. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people do. We're forgiven by the blood of Christ. In the good old days, the landscape has changed. In chapter 1 and 2, we see the good old days. But in chapter 3, in most Bibles, have this subtitled, The Fall. The planet was disturbed. Cursed relationships came. Food itself would require toil and work. Eve pitted pivoted God's word against her will, and Adam stood next to her. And the curse, the curse of sin would come in our veins and would be played out in relationships, in enmity, in childbirth, in work, in relationships, in all the good tov, all the good tov was affected. Sickness and disease and the further away from creation we get, no matter how old the earth is, it will only get worse. The landscape changed and the good old days aren't only broken, they are cursed. Feel the curse. Feel the curse of wars and insane political divide, a mental health crisis that is gripping our young people and so many of us. The challenges in our schools, the natural disasters, and don't forget the economy. And sexuality was impacted by the fallen curse. Close your eyes and listen to the curse. On Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, it's on page 968. If you have your own Bible, so you can circle or listen and just listen to these words like we all, no one, or there. Beginning on page 968, beginning in verse 9, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. No one righteous. Listen for all those words. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? No, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. 
they have together become worthless, and no one does good, not even one. Then it goes into some metaphors. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouth are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They ruin and misery marks their way. And the way of peace they do not know, and it ends with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me repeat that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you want to get real technical, there are six references. There are six references to Psalms, and six is seen as the incomplete number. How do you handle that scripture? My second favorite song, and Can It Be is my first one, if you didn't know that. But my second favorite song is by Multiby Babcock, a New York outdoorsman, pastor. He wrote, this is my father's world. I love that song. But with the curse, the song might more appropriately go like this. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, but it's not the one he built. War and hate, porn and divorce, his son would take the curse. This is my father's world, but it's not the world my dad built. His son would take the curse. His son would take the curse in Genesis 3.15 that what theologians have called the proto-evangelium, the first promise of the gospel. And I was reminded about this as well too. The curse that he curses the snake is in the context of this promise. He says, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Deliver us from evil, we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from evil. Sometimes we think deliver us from evil means this. It's good versus bad. That idea of yin-yang. It's good versus bad. It's Satan against God. They're certainly adversaries. But here's the question. Who is Satan's equal? It's not God. It's the angels. It's not this. It's this. See the difference? If it's only this, this is dualism. God versus Satan. There's certainly a battle. There's certainly we're in warfare. But it's this. This happened when Jesus said it's finished. This happened when our Savior came out of the grave. This happened when the Spirit oh, got breathed on the disciples at Pentecost. This happened. Theology is living Theology is good only if it's living, and that's why in terms of grace and truth, we live this out. There was a study that came across my desk. It wasn't real shock, shocking, but the background of it was, was helpful. There was a Barna study that said that the number one reason that non-Christians have against Christians, it's no surprise, is hypocrisy. They look at our lives and they see a, um, a disconnect. So there was a Canadian Catholic theologian by the name of Ronald Rollheiser. Hope I said his name right, sir. He said this, to be a member of the church is to carry the mantle of both the worst sin and the finest heroism of the soul. Because the church 
always looks exactly as it looked at the original crucifixion. God hung among thieves. God hung among thieves. It was messy. Until Christ's return, we will face accusations of hypocrisy. Many times we will have earned those chants. But Christ is changing lives. Is he changing yours? Sure is changing mine. So the landscape has changed. But not hope. Hope has a name. Hope's name is Jesus. And if you are a child, a daughter of the king, a son of the king, he lives in you. He lives in you by his spirit. So the final question we ask is, where's the hope? Hope lives with the reality of what's called imagio Dei. That's a Latin term. Imagio, image. Deo means God. We are made in the image and the fall, and we are restored by Christ. We see the gift of body. We see the gift of sexuality. We see the gift of life. We see the gift of relationships having a stamp. And in this whole discussion of gender identity, a comment that a former colleague of mine made years ago, he went to a conference, and when he came back, I said, Dennis, what was the best thing that you learned from your conference? He said it was the former president of Youth for Christ, Jay Kessler. Any of you recognize that name? Jay Kessler was the founder of Youth for Christ, then went on to be president at Taylor University, I think, in Indiana. He said, Jay Kessler said, when you look at a young person or look at a person, whether they have tats or they're transitioning or whatever, bore your eyes into theirs and say under your breath, yes, they are made in the image of the Almighty. They are made in the image of the King. Is there hope? Absolutely. We believe that God in his grace offers redemption and restoration to all who confess and turn from their sin and their sexual sin. And we recognize living the life of Christian discipleship in this still sin-marred now but not yet fully realized kingdom of God is always difficult. It requires sacrifice and involves some level of struggle for all of us as all disciples expectantly await the final full rescue and restoration from whatever unique form of brokenness we experience. There is hope. And so hope has a posture. So let me use this illustration. You know I like to use props. And so let's just imagine, by the way, spring is coming. I promise. I told someone, I said, let's just make sure the robins know that, okay? Our robins are going nuts. But it's going to be nice weather. And I just want to use this illustration. There's a point to this. And so let's imagine that... Um, you came over to help me in a work project this summer. And it's a really important work project. And we're laughing. And uh, you ask, what are we doing? We're replacing some boards, okay? We're replacing some boards. And I get my work gloves on. And we're working together. And uh, I'll put a pen in my mouth so it looks like I know what I'm doing. And uh, you ask me, well, if we're going to cut the board, we need to cut twice, measure once. Measure once or cut twice. Let's just use a really good tape measure, okay? If you want to borrow this, you can't. Sorry. So as we're working on our, we're working on our um, cutting board, and we're cutting 
and it's sunny out, and I grab some shades, and I put the shades on so that I can see because it's sunny out. Question for me, am I looking at the board through one lens or two? One or two? How many of you think two? I feel like we're going to the eye doctor now, don't you? <laughs> okay. But you look at me and you say, Pastor Kirk, to be safe, you have to wear safety goggles. Right? You got to be safe. You got the cool tape measure. You got the pen pencil in the mouth. You got to have... So my question for you is, how many lenses are we looking at when I cut the board? One or two or three? All three, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Why did I do that? Because I think it illustrates this last thing that I want to share with you, or this point I want to share with you. Humility has a posture of hope. There are three lenses. Three lenses. First of all, this lens. Sacred integrity or courageous compassion. What does the Bible say? But understand this, that this Bible theology works as a skeleton for our posture. It's, the it's what we hang everything on. Dr. Charles McGow, who's a Presbyterian pastor in Nashville, wrote this. Skeletons are absolutely essential for providing strength and structure for the body, but like a skeleton with a body is our theology, the Bible. If that's the only thing or even the main thing about spirituality that's visible to others, it means we're either spiritually sick, only flesh and bones alike, or spiritually dead, bones in a grave after a while. All three lenses are important. We start with spiritual integrity, sacred integrity. What does the scripture say? That's important, but that's not the only lens that we have. We're going to look at this through all three lenses. So just bear with me right now. Don't put up a guard. Just bear with me and hear my heart. The second lens is that we walk alongside folks who are going through this. Just like Emmanuel did. I love Emmanuel. That's a Christmas word. And you will call his name Emmanuel, for God is with us. Competing scripts. Folks that are walking through this, walk alongside them. The Spirit of God is in you. We hold on to two realities. We hold on to this Amagio Dei, made in the image of God, and we hold on to this reality, the curse called the depravity of man. And who did that perfectly? Our King did. And He gave us the Spirit to do the same thing. Lends one sacred integrity. We have to know what the truth is. Courageous compassion. Number two, we walk alongside. And this is where you as an older Christian have the advantage. Why do you say that? Because you have seen the lifetime benefit of the Christian community and the transformation of the heart. You have in your portfolio, you have seen the faithfulness of God. Amen? Has he answered prayer? Have you seen his faithfulness? Have you seen his mercy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Finally, listen to the questions of the heart. Stand with a cup of coffee and listen well. 
it's easier to repost a social media post than show kindness. This message was prefronted with grace and then truth. What does God see when he looks at me? Do you remember the good old days? And finally, understand this. Hope sees people, not issues. God is not surprised. These are not peaceful times. One of my heroes is C.S. Lewis. Reason is, is because we still talk about his work 60 plus years later and it's right on point. He was constantly being pulled into political camps. He was constantly being asked to side with this side of the parliament or the opposing part. He was always, all the time, all the time. He said, do you know what the most political thing you can do is? Do you know what the most political thing you can do is? Do you know what the most political thing you can do is? Convert your neighbor. Wow. So what do I do with this? Where is the hope? One of three things. One, if you can't come, I invite you to pull up a cup of coffee and go to lbs.edu. Fall conference. It's right there. Right there. Be equipped. Number two, come this afternoon. Supper is provided. You can eat the salad. I'll have the brat. Just saying. And there's lots more that could be talked about. Our denomination is working on a paper called human, The Human Person and Sexuality. It'll be released in mid-June. Look for that. We'll let you know. We'll make it available. But look for that and be equipped. Let's stand together. We got one more song.